Well, let me pray. Father, your son Jesus said, not a jot or a tittle of your word will fall from the ground. Father, of all the things that we have on earth that we will not have in heaven, one of the few that we will have in heaven that we have on earth is your word. And so, God, we thank you that this is an eternal word, that this is a transcendent word, that this word, as Brian said, does point us to you, which means that no one, apart from your spirit, is able to do it justice. No one, apart from the ministry of your Holy Spirit, can do this, what we're going to do right now in a way that honors you. So God, we pray, so that Christ could be honored, that your spirit might come and move through your word today for his sake. Work in our hearts, work in our minds, transform us, transform this church, renew our minds for Jesus' sake and in his name, amen. Well, we're going to take a break from Judges. gets a little heavy, especially as we're moving into these last chapters. But more importantly, we're getting near the end of the church year, the church fiscal year. And so in those times, it's always nice to do a little bit of reflecting. God has in many ways blessed North Shore this past year. But in addition to being thankful for that, we always need to remember that God blesses a local church to display his kindness, to help us be thankful but more than anything, to equip us for greater ministry. That's why his blessing comes. So this morning, we want to focus what is at the very heart of the mission that God has given to us as a church. Today, we want to spend time thinking about our mission to reach lost people through the gospel. And a great place to get encouragement for that is in the fifth chapter of Luke that Brian just read. The events in this text, as you probably know, near the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We're not sure how familiar Peter and James and John are of Jesus. My guess is from what it says, they don't know him very well at all at this point. This may be their first significant exposure to Jesus. So they're more or less strangers with Jesus at this time. In Luke, so far, just to give us a little bit of con context here. This is the beginning of his ministry. He's been tempted by the devil. He went to the synagogue and he announced the purpose of his ministry, quoting from Isaiah 61. And he said, my ministry is to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty to those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So that's a Nazareth manifesto, if you will. That's what he says he's about. That's what he's doing. And then he begins to demonstrate that ministry in his initial teachings and his initial miracles. But one thing he hasn't done early at this point in his ministry yet is he hadn't done anything to make certain that this gospel would be spread to every corner of the world as God intended. And so in order for that to happen, he has to call disciples and he would equip them with the gospel. So into that context, Luke here records this wonderful story of Jesus calling his first disciple, calling the leader of the disciples, Peter, as well as a couple of his partners in the Zebedee Seafood Corporation, if you will, James and John. The story powerfully teaches us what is at the center of our mission, which is to fish for lost people with the gospel. But beyond simply giving us that kind of vision for the mission, Jesus also gives us some very important, very practical, very helpful lessons on how to fish for people. 
But before we go into that, I want us to back up just a minute and think about a bigger picture. This particular text is not just a helpful set of lessons for us. This text and understanding this text is pivotal to understanding not just our mission and not just what we're about and not a little bit more about God. It really is pivotal in helping us to understand the character of the church. It may seem like it's just another story. This is really important to help us understand what the church is about. This is not just one of many possible metaphors, this fishing imagery that he could have used, okay? He's doing this to help shape our understanding of the character of the church. Now, I need, I need to prove that to you, and I think I have four ways to do that. Why this is such an important part, why this text speaks to the character of the church, not just here's four ways to know how to fish for souls. The first reason we know that this whole fishing theme which comes up here is so important to Jesus is because he spends an incredibly disproportionate amount of time with fishermen during his ministry. Did you ever think about that? We know that of the 12 disciples, four are explicitly revealed as being fishermen. Andrew, Peter, James, and John. That's explicit. It's said right in the text. But depending on how you see John 21, where we see fishing again in the Gospels, some scholars believe seven of the disciples made their living as fishermen. Now, we don't know that for sure, but even if you go to the smaller number, which is explicit, we know that. That means that of all the possible career backgrounds Jesus could have drawn from to choose his disciples, a third of his disciples caught fish for a living. And these were not just any four disciples. Among these disciples were Peter, James, and John, and they were Jesus's inner circle. They were his inner circle. They were his closest disciples. Along with the Apostle Paul, it's these three fishermen who are primarily spotlighted in Acts as Luke tells the story of how Christ began to build his church. That's not an accident, okay? Yet they're all fishermen. A second way we see the centrality of fishing to Jesus' mission for the church is in all three synoptic gospels. So there's the repetition, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all have an account of Jesus calling Peter and how he called him to be a disciple, as well as these other fishermen, James and John. And those call narratives are all placed within the context of fishing. In other words, he's not just calling fishermen, he's calling fishermen while they're fishing. Okay? And remember, at the other end of Jesus' ministry with Peter. Now, Peter had fallen away at this point. He had denied Jesus three times, and so he's out. And so Jesus has to recommission him out of his grace and mercy. And how does he recommission him the second time? In the same context he did here on the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee, which is also the Sea of Gennesaret, which is what we said here. All the same place, okay? Same location. And where do you find Peter in that second commissioning when it opens? He's in a boat fishing. So Jesus uses fishing twice to establish Peter's ministry as an apostle. He's the leader of the apostles. That kind of repetition should speak to us about how tightly Jesus is tying together reaching the lost with fishing. Another way, as we look at Jesus calling his disciples, not only here in Luke, but also in Matthew and Mark, he uses fishing as the means to communicate to them how they were going to fulfill 
this mission to spread the gospel. When you put all of that together, it seems like there's something fishy going on around here. Someone could respond by saying, well, I don't know about that. Jesus was from Galilee. Most of his disciples were from Galilee. And guess what? Galilee had a big fishing industry in the midst of it. So pretty easy to explain that way. Fishing was familiar. It was readily available because they were in a fishing haven. And so therefore, that's why he used it. But that can't be right. Because that explanation just can be moved back a level. And what I mean by that is this. If the reason for all this fishiness is because it all takes place within this Galilean fishing hub, then the question moves back to, then why in God's sovereign purpose did he cause his son to minister and make friends in an area where fishing was so central to life? You can't escape the fact that God superintends fishing to be important here. But there's a fourth way that we see the centrality of fishing fishing in the mission of Jesus. And this is seen when we back up even further and take a look at all of Scripture. And that is this. When you look at the apostles and the relationship between their occupation as fishermen and the fishing for men ministry that they're going to be given as apostles, when you do that, you see that these apostles are really just part of a long line of men prepared to lead his people by placing them in vocations that gave them the specific kind of training they would need for future ministry. Do you understand that? The apostles, like a whole lot of other people in the, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, were given a specific vocation, not only so that they could earn a living, but to prepare them for the leadership ministries God has them for. For instance, in Genesis, you meet Joseph. Now, Joseph, as we know, was commissioned to save the world, and particularly the Jewish people, by planning and managing and executing a scheme to feed the world during seven years of famine. And he does that, of course, as you remember the story, by skillfully managing and distributing the food that he'd stored up during the previous seven years of plenty. That's an enormous logistical undertaking. If you know anything about project management, that is an absolutely huge project. This is a person who has to have administrative ability. He has to have skills. The skills like you acquire when you are managing the estate of a leading Egyptian citizen like Potiphar and later managing a prison with all the logistical challenges that that presents. Another example is Moses. God raised up Moses to shepherd the people when they're out of bondage in Egypt and also to lead them through 40 years in the wilderness. So how does he prepare him for doing that? Well, he removes him from the elite ruling class in Egypt and he puts him on the backside of Midian, shepherding his father-in-law's flock. David, like Moses, he was called to shepherd his people as their king and also as a warrior king to be able to make war against God's remaining enemies. So what does God do? David spends his youth in the pasture shepherding his father's sheep. And he develops the courage of a warrior by killing bears and lions defending his flock. He learns the ways of a warrior as a commander in Saul's army. All of that in preparation for who he became as king. You see, in the New Testament, a scholar and a teacher of God's word would be required to explain and then record the sometimes complicated theological truths that are embedded in the gospel. So what does God do? He raises up Saul of Tarsus, a man who'd spent his entire vocational life training as a theologian and Bible scholar. See the pattern here? 
So God used the former vocations of all of these men to train them for their future leadership ministries. And with that in mind, the main professional background represented among his most fruitful apostles was then a professional fisherman. And of course, the most glaring evidence of the centrality of his mission is in the way Jesus explicitly relates their mission to fishing. You will be catching men. Or in Matthew and Mark, it's, I will make you fishers of men. Same thing. Now, the reason I go into all of that is because it's important for us to know that from the very beginning, Christ intends to infuse this fishing DNA into his church. Think about it. As we see in this text, Brian read, Jesus is clearly showing himself to be, among other things, the great fisherman. Nobody fishes like Jesus, as we'll see. Okay? So we see that. And Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that the foundation of the church are the apostles and prophets. The apostles. So we know that the church is made of, at the head, the great fisherman, who he portrays himself to be later on, we'll see that, and embedded within the foundation are apostolic fishermen. Which means that he's clearly working to infuse this fisherman DNA into the makeup of the church. Okay? This is how essential this is to the character and to the mission of the church. So if we're not engaged in reaching the lost, that tells us that we're not expressing what God has placed into the spiritual DNA of his church. We're betraying some of the basic programming God has put into his church from the start. Now, with that to help us see how important, how central this is to the mission of Jesus and the church, now let's look at four lessons we can draw from this text that can help us in our own fishing as individuals and as we as a church step out to win the unchurched for Christ. First in verse 4, we see that fishing teaches us the importance of obeying Christ when his commands seem uninformed to us. The importance of obeying Christ when his commands seem uninformed to us. Now that may sound a little blasphemous. That's exactly what's going on here. Speaking of Jesus, Luke writes in verse 4, And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Luke clearly reveals Peter as a man who strongly suspects that this fishing expedition that Jesus proposes will fail. But out of obedience, he chooses to honor this teacher from Nazareth. He says to Jesus, We toiled all night, and took nothing. And the operative words there are all and nothing, right? Which means I'm exhausted, and this is going to be a complete waste of time. The professional fisherman clearly sees Jesus as uninformed. He's the expert. He's fished on this lake all of his adult life at least. And the scholars tell us that for any professional fisherman in Galilee, Jesus' proposed fishing trip had three strikes against it before they pulled out of the dock. As we've said, first of all, Jesus, though he was clearly an impressive teacher of the law, was a carpenter turned itinerant teacher. He doesn't have the resume to be a professional fisherman. Peter clearly respects and wants to honor Jesus, but as a fisherman, he's a rookie. He surely trusts in his own expertise as a pro more than Jesus, who, again, he doesn't know very well at this point, and who is surely out of his depth here. That's strike one. Strike two, in addition to the fact that Peter and the other professional fishermen had been out all night and enjoyed no success, 
every fisherman on the Sea of Galilee knew that on that lake, nighttime was by far the better time to catch fish. Everybody on that lake knew that. That's strike two. Strike three was that Jesus, specifically in the text, Luke puts it out there for us, tells Peter that he wants to go out in the day and lower this big net down into the deep waters. We know it has to be the big net because that's the only one you did when you were using deep waters. Again, all the fishermen that fished on the Sea of Galilee knew that you only fished in the deep waters with the big net at night. That's the only time you use that net. During the day, if you wanted to have any success, you had to use a much smaller net, 15 feet across, and kind of just throw it out there. You've seen pictures maybe of that. And you had to do it in shallow water. That's the way this lake was. I don't understand that. They knew that. So Jesus is asking Peter to violate some of the most basic tenets of fishing on this lake. It would be like saying, let's go fish for some muskie. I'll bring the minnows. (laughs) It doesn't work. His request to a fisherman like Peter, who'd spent years on this lake, would surely have sounded totally uninformed. Well, as it relates to us in Jesus' call for us to fish for lost people, we can have the same response. A new neighbor moves two houses down from you. You have a couple of brief conversations as they're moving in, get to know them a little bit. You discover that the person is a self-proclaimed atheist and not at all interested in church or the things of God. But two weeks later, the Holy Spirit begins to work on you, begin to prompt you. Why don't you invite him over for dinner? Break the ice. Maybe have a spiritual conversation. And you ignore it. You know why? Because you know. (laughs) You know he's an atheist. He won't be open to the gospel. And so Jesus' request for you to follow up with your new neighbor seems horribly uninformed. Hey, I talked to him for 10 minutes. He seemed totally uninterested. That's our way of saying we fished all night long and we had nothing to show for it, right? We can find a thousand reasons why not to reach out to someone and many of them are rooted in the foolish assumption that we know better than Jesus which fish will swim into our gospel net. That's what happens when you take your eyes off the great fishermen. When we do that, it's amazing how much more clearly we see all the obstacles to someone coming to faith. The story in Luke and the rest of Scripture tells us that Christ isn't the least bit hindered by any of what we might perceive to be obstacles. Luke chapter 5 resounds with the truth that whatever negative factors there may be at work, when Jesus wants to catch fish, he catches fish. All obstacles dissolve in the presence of the Holy Spirit who can work miraculously in the heart of anyone. One lesson from this story is in order to have his kingdom come in this area, we need to trust him and obey him when his counsel seems uninformed, and it frequently does because we're prideful people. To his credit, after Peter tells Jesus why this venture is probably doomed to failure, he says, but at your word, I will let down the nets. That's a good strategy for us here. Okay? Let down the net of the gospel, or perhaps more graphically, be the net of the gospel that God throws out, the great fisherman throws out to the fish in the area, and allow him to cast you in any direction he chooses. Let him take care of bringing in the catch. The second lesson Jesus teaches us here in this story is the importance of working hard with no promise of quick success. Again, the same thing that Peter says. We toiled all night long and took nothing. Now, that word for toil in the original is a very strong word for work. 
This is not somebody who's working up a slight sweat. This is something that wears you out. He's saying, we are worn out. We've worked that hard all night long, and we took nothing. Now, we have to understand that this is not fishing the way we do it today. It's not angling with a pole and a line. People did that back then. It's in Matthew 17. Jesus pays the temple tax through something in the, in the fish's mouth. But that's not commercial fishermen. You couldn't make money that way, at least not on Galilee. Those large nets that these men had been casting all night, to no avail, were drag nets. And they were 300 feet long. That's a football field. And they were about eight feet wide. Try throwing a net, length of net that far out and then dragging it through the water. And in between casts of the net, you're picking out the seaweed and the rotting fish and all the junk. Or try rowing a heavy 25-foot-long wooden boat, which is what they used on the Sea of Galilee, dragging for fish. Do that all night. This is hard work. And although Jesus does a miracle that brings this astonishing catch in here, Luke 5 Clearly the lesson is not that fishing for men will always be miraculously productive as long as Jesus is in your boat. Too many godly, spirit-led missionaries have labored for decades and never seen any converts for that to be the lesson here. There's no promise of immediate results because evangelism isn't reducible to some kind of formula. My oldest son is a National Guard recruiter, so he's in the business of catching recruits. And he's reduced it to the math. He's discovered that on average, for every 15 phone calls he makes, he gets a recruit. He's figured that out. So he smiles and dials, knowing all along that if he dials enough, he can get a recruit every day. I wish evangelism was like that. (laughs) It's hard. But let me just give a five-minute commercial for doing hard things for God. Understanding that this totally goes against the grain of our culture. See, in America, if something is hard to do, we know that that means that there's a problem somewhere that needs to be fixed. We need to develop a tool to make it less labor-intensive. Technology has to be employed to reduce the work involved. That is so woven into the fabric of our culture that we tend to assume that if we're trying to do something hard for God, there's a mistake, or we're using the wrong approach, or the wrong method, or the wrong tool. Well, sometimes those are true. But that attitude has caused all sorts of problems within evangelicalism as horrible misjudgments have been made in trying to win the loss for Christ by an easier way. In an attempt to reduce the labor, sometimes the gospel ends up being watered down. And the reason is because the premise is wrong. This premise that says, we need to make coming to Christ easier. That's wrong. It would be difficult to find a value system more in conflict with Scripture than this one that mitigates against doing hard things. You know from 2 Corinthians Chapter 12, Paul is struggling with a thorn. We don't know what it was, probably demonically caused. It says it's by an angel, a demonic being. We don't know what it was, but we know Paul three times pleads with God to remove it from him. So we know this much. This was really hard because the Apostle Paul was probably a pretty tough guy. God responds to his pleas for relief, as we know, beginning in verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. 
For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You hear how that's turned upside down (laughs) from the world? Okay, the world says, when I'm weak, when it's easy, that's a good thing. Paul says, no, when it's hard, that's a good thing. Because then Christ can be seen in me. Grace comes on people who know they're weak. And as we all know, there are very few ways of us understanding, of being reminded of how weak we are, but by trying to do something that's above our heads. Okay? That means that if we want God's enabling grace in our lives, one surefire way to get it is for us to obey God in doing something hard. You want to know the joy of seeing God work through you in ways you know you could never do on your own? Doing something hard for God must almost always be involved because that's when his empowering grace shows up. Anyone want God's grace in their lives? I do. (laughs) Do hard things like evangelism. Anyone want a heart like Paul's that's anxious to boast in your weaknesses for the sake of Christ? I really want that (laughs) because I'm not there. But that attitude doesn't come naturally. It has to be learned by God's grace, and you learn it as you trust God more deeply. Well, how do you suppose Paul learned to trust God more deeply? He did a lot of really hard things, and he saw in the midst of it how faithful God was and how powerful he was. And that's another thing. You typically don't see how faithful and how powerful God is unless you're doing something hard. Sometimes it's involuntary. Hard things just happen to us. We see God's faithfulness. We see his power. But when we try to do overtly hard things, we get to see the same part of God. He gets more glory when we do hard things, and ultimately we get more joy. The biblical value system is hard, if it's from God, is good. Another lesson this story teaches us about implementing Jesus' vision of catching people is an often overlooked principle in casting the net of the gospel, and that is the importance of working together as a team to reach people for Christ. We see this in the story when Peter, whoever else was in the boat, we know the pronouns are plural, so we know Peter's in there with some other people in addition to Jesus, probably James and John, it doesn't, doesn't say that. But they're working together as a team when they try to haul this mammoth net in with its big catch, Okay. And in addition to that teamwork that they're working on in that boat, it says in verse 7, they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Again, fishing or angling today is easily done alone, often is done alone. But the kind of fishing that Jesus here uses to teach us about reaching the lost, which is the important kind, this is the kind he uses, that can't be done alone. Those huge nets would be required to have a number of people to both cast them into the water and haul them back again, okay? You have to have somebody rowing while the other people are taking care of the net. You have to have other people that are cleaning the net, okay? Those lessons on reaching the lost are so important, but sadly, most of them are not put into practice in North America. Max Stiles, in his wonderful little book called Evangelism, How the Whole Church Speaks of Jesus, you can read it about two hours, That has been so helpful to help a whole lot of people who otherwise have floundered in their evangelism. Stiles' point 
is to say that personal evangelism is indispensable. We all need to be able to do that. That's part of what we need to do for unbelievers. But the real engine for evangelism, he writes, I think rightly, is the local church. The real engine for evangelism is the local church. He's compelling in his case. His strategy, which has been so fruitful when it's employed, is for whole churches to work together to speak of Jesus to unbelievers. Now, he's not talking about evangelistic programs or bringing in a crusade. Those drain many precious resources and frankly show very little fruit that lasts. What he's talking about here is developing a culture in churches where evangelism is done by multiple people all working together to bring people to Jesus. Now, how does this look? Well, he tells many stories in his book to give us an idea what this looks like. But in one story, a believer named Abigail, it's a true story. Abigail goes to a healthy church that he knew of, and she meets a young Asian woman on a city bus who tells her that I've just got off a plane from China, and I'm new in this country. This is my new country. Well, Abigail knew this was a divine appointment because that doesn't happen every day. But rather than feel pressured in their brief time in the taxi to try to shove a track down her throat or read her through a, a Roman's road or something like that, Abigail asks this woman, her name was Van, who'd indicated that she was interested in experiencing Western culture, she asked her if she'd be interested in attending a Western wedding at her church that she'd been invited to. Because Abigail's church had a culture of evangelism where the gospel saturates all the ministries, she knew that her pastor and that wedding would be giving a clear presentation of the gospel. Well, sure enough, Van jumped at the opportunity for this cultural enlightenment, and she attended the wedding. And as Abigail knew he would, the pastor preached a message focused as much on Christ as the heavenly bridegroom as on those two people standing in front of him. And because the church had a culture of evangelism for internationals, Abigail was able to get from the church a Bible written in Mandarin Chinese, which she offered to read with Van. Abigail also invited some other church members who spoke Mandarin to the Bible study and shared their testimonies. Teamwork. When Van went away to college in Boston, Abigail knew of a friend who went to a church in Boston, recommended the church, and asked her, would you be willing to help read the Bible to this woman? Okay, the point is, do you hear how the church worked together to perpetrate this holy conspiracy to win Van to Christ? Okay, she wasn't only repeatedly exposed to the Word of God, she also repeatedly saw Christ incarnate through many different people who were able to give her the love of Christ. This is a powerful way. That approach gets me really juiced about evangelism, especially here in this church, because by God's grace, this church is better at loving people than a lot of other churches, by God's grace. We have some people here who really have a sense of call in that area. We're also working to become increasingly gospel-saturated in our ministries. That's a value we're trying to, to work in. So what a joy it would be to develop and grow a strong culture of evangelism here so that lives of your unbelieving friends and relatives and co-workers and, and all the people that are in your life could be lovingly invaded by an army of believers here at North Shore. That's really cool. A fourth lesson from this text about implementing Christ's vision for fishing for the unchurched is 
We see the importance of living in deep humility before King Jesus. We see the importance of living in deep humility before King Jesus. After the miraculous catch, Luke tells us in verse 8, But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. If you don't know what's going on here, you might see Peter's reaction to be a bit strange. You might wonder, if you were an alien and not sure about the dynamics, why Peter didn't say, boy, that's great. Could you do that again? <laughs> we'll get a couple more boats out here. Could you do that again? Why doesn't he respond that way? Because humility is a natural response when we're confronted with supremacy. The supremacy that Jesus showed over Peter that day. Tim Keller tells a story of a young woman who's from a Midwestern town, not, not unlike this one. And she was a gifted vocalist. She took lessons from a teacher at the small community college nearby, and she just charmed that rural community with her ability. She got the lead in all the community musicals. She sang in church. She did a lot of funerals and weddings. Everybody in that town knew she was a good singer, and they were so excited and so proud of her because she was a local product. They encouraged her to go to New York to see if she could break into show business. So she followed her dream, and somehow she managed to land an audition for a small part in an off-Broadway production. And as she was sitting outside in the waiting room, awaiting her audition, she hears another woman in the room auditioning for the same part that she's there for. And as she listened, she turned white with terror because she knew that the voice she was listening to was inestimably better than hers. Big fish, small pond. At that moment, she picked up her coat, crossed her name off the audition list, and she walked out of the building crushed by humiliation. The point of the story is, even in the face of human supremacy, we sense our profound inadequacy. How much more when the Lord of the universe demonstrates to Peter this miracle that he is an inestimably better fisherman than Peter is. Peter was in the presence of someone who had the wrong kind of net at the wrong time of day in the wrong depth of water, caught more fish than he'd ever had in his net. In the face of all of that, his own sinfulness comes to the surface. This is common in Scripture. Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, and he agonizes in contrition. Job sees God in the last part of the book and says, Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. But there may be something else going on here with Peter, too. It's pretty clear... <laughs> that even though those fish were buried under several feet of water, Jesus knew they were there. You have to wonder if Peter wasn't thinking, if he knows all the fish hidden in that lake, maybe he knows all the sins hidden in my heart. There's nothing more humbling when you meet someone who sees right through you. And this is where we all are, if we have any health spiritually. We know that God sees all our junk, all our pettiness, all our dishonesty, all our hypocrisy, the selfishness, the jealousy, the impatience, arrogance, temper, crankiness, whatever you want to call it, all our prejudice, he sees it all. And he loves us anyway. There is nothing more humbling than when you get that. When you get it, not in here, in here. When you know that there is one who knows you to the very bottom and loves you to the stars. You show me someone who really owns that in here, 
and I will show you someone who is rapidly disconnecting his ego from what other people think about him. I'll show you someone who loves Jesus so much that increasingly she can't shut up about him. Humility. So how does this relate to reflecting on our blessings as a church here at North Shore as we end the fiscal year? 70% of all churches in North America are in decline, spiritually, across denominations, 70%. By God's grace, North Shore finds itself growing numerically, and we trust, by God's grace, spiritually as well. But again, hear this. When you think about what God has done, of course, be grateful for his blessing, but don't forget that in addition to manifesting his kindness to us, God is also equipping us. He's preparing us for more ministry. God has been equipping North Shore for its mission. To put it another way, God is blessing us to use us for his name, his fame, and his acclaim. That's why this is happening. As long as we keep our eyes on the captain of the gospel ship, Jesus, learning how to obey him even when it seems silly, learning to work hard with no prospect of quick success, looking to him, learning to work as a team to win people to Christ and being regularly humbled in the face of Christ's supremacy. As all of those things continue by God's grace to happen here, the blessings from the next chapter of ministry can be even brighter than this one. May God give us the grace to learn from Christ how to fish for souls for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, we're just so grateful the way that your word causes us to look at Jesus. He's the star of this story. He's the star of this book. Father, thank you that if we're reading it rightly, we're going to see him. We're going to be more impressed with him. We're going to love him more. And Father, I pray that you would help all of us to do that because Jesus deserves it. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on a cross so that your wrath against sin might be taken care of so that we wouldn't have to suffer it. Thank you for sending him as our substitute that you exchanged out for us. We deserve to die. He deserved to live. He died so that we might live. God, that's such a beautiful exchange. And Father, if there's someone here who doesn't know, who has not yet trusted in Christ, I pray that you do that today. For the rest of us, God, give us a hunger to see Christ honored in our lives and in our church. And we know that the most explicit way that can happen is as we magnify him, as we show him, as we declare him to people who don't know him. Help us to do that. Help us to work as a team. Help us to trust you when you're giving us counsel that we don't really understand. Help us to do that, Father, as we humble ourselves before you, our great great God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.